0: Again, everyone, and welcome back to the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Facillo and Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area. Please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Radio Network mobile app so that you could have access to all of our station's content, not just Frontline with Joe and Joe. And uh, if you want to share some feedback, if you want to give us some feedback on the station in general and our programming, you can go to VeritasCatholic.com, VeritasCatholic.com. And of course, if you like what Joe and I do and you want to follow us on social media, you can find us at The Frontline TV, The Frontline TV on YouTube. And today, we are very pleased and honored to be welcoming back to the program a friend of the show, Mike Aquilina. And many of you out there know who Mike is. Um, But I am going to give him a brief introduction. But what we are going to be discussing is his new book, How the Fathers read the Bible. Interesting question. That's why Mike's with us today. Uh how the fathers read the Bible, scripture, liturgy, and the early church. Um, quick bio on Mike Aquilinas, the executive vice president of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology and a contributing editor for Angelus News. He is author of more than 50 books, including The Fathers of the Church and The Villains of the Early Church. He hosts the Way of the Fathers podcast for catholicculture.org and edits the Reclaiming Catholic History series for Ave Maria Press. He and his wife, Terry have been married since 1985. They are the parents of six children and numerous grandchildren. Mike Aquilino, welcome back to The Frontline with Joe and Joe, brother.
2: Hey, thanks for having me back, Joe and Joe. Right. Joe. our
0: pleasure. <laughs> Three um, pisons again. We, we, you know, we will interview anybody, Mike. But it's always <laughs> nice when we have the pie, when it's a trio of pisons. Um, Joe, <laughs> I'm going to hand it over to you.
1: We'll begin with the prayer because all good things start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided inspired by this confidence we fly into you a virgin a virgin's our mother to you we come before you we stand sinful and sorrowful O mother of the word incarnate despise not our petitions but in your clemency hear and answer us amen, amen. In the name of the father son holy spirit amen. amen mike before we get into book i just wanted to comment on the saint paul center we talk to a lot of people and i'm not just saying this i mean the folks that uh, Maria sends us over from St. Paul Center, you being one, um, it, really top-notch. Honestly, I, like it's it's a really great organization. Um, many of them are converts to the church. Uh, I, I'd just like you to comment on that a little bit, because maybe a lot of people don't know about it. I mean, we get a lot of authors from Sophia Press. We get them from Ignatius. We get them from Tan. Um I, you know, it's, it's relatively new, but give some, some background on it because it's an outstanding, I'll be honest with you. I, I think of Scott Hahn's legacy. I think that's it. Like to be truthful with you, if you ask me other than his two sons that are priests, but uh, you could talk to that a little bit because honest to goodness, um, it's an outstanding organization.
2: Well, last year was the 20th anniversary of, it, of the founding of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, and, uh, and we, we started it up uh, uh, right after 9-11, I think it was. We, we, we incorporated, we, we put the papers in, and what we do is we promote uh, biblical literacy for all Catholics and biblical fluency for Catholic clergy and Catholic teachers. um, We want people to understand the Bible from the heart of the Church. We want them to encounter the Bible at the heart of the Church, because that's its home. And really, that's the point of my book, How the Fathers Read the Bible, because because the the church has traditionally received the scriptures within the liturgy. That's where we hear them proclaimed, that's where we hear them interpreted, and that's the way it's been since not only from the beginning of the church, but from the beginning of the religion of ancient Israel. The, the, the scriptures were produced in order to be proclaimed in the liturgy. Um, so yeah, we've been going now for 21 years and, uh, and it's, it's a lot of fun. As you mentioned, uh, it's an amazing group of people, uh, uh, Scott Hahn, uh, John Bergsma, you know, so many people, uh, who, who, um, who, who really have the smarts, you know, I, I, feel like I'm along for the ride.
1: No, I mean, it's, it's not only smarts. I mean, cause to be honest with you, um, I, I mean, we, like I said, we interview a lot of people and many of them are very smart, uh. With that said, it's they have zeal, and and to be true. honest with you, zeal trumps smarts if you ask me, um, in many respects, and they're really doing it, uh, and and it's it's top of the line, really. Yeah. Like well, honest be, to goodness,
0: I'll, I'll be honest with you. I mean, as far as uh, you know, in, in my lifetime, even. Okay, so I I, I didn't exactly wasn't exactly practicing the faith for a while, but coming back, what a what a, a blessing! Hey, maybe all those Protestant Catholic squabbles in America about who reads the Bible and who doesn't, maybe the the good fruit that 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 the Lord drew out of that was the St. Paul Center, because not for anything. I hear more Catholics talk about the Bible now, and in in very recent years, than I have you know prior you know earlier in my life. Where we're, we're the, the Catholics are out there not just talking about, let's say, the Catechism, which is important, and the teachings of the Catholic Church, but talking about the Bible, Scripture. Like, your, like yourself, Mike, and you mentioned John Burks, but Brant Petrie, Scott Hunt. I mean, and it just brings it alive from a Catholic point of view. i never experienced this in my life. Mm-hmm. I think it's great.
2: I do, too. I do too. And I've been so pleased to be a part of it from the very beginning. Um, So, uh, so yeah, the, the center is thriving and growing so fast and we'll be building a new home in Steubenville right across the street from the university. Uh, we expect that to go up in the next couple of years and, uh, we'll be building a media studio in there and, uh, and there'll be a meeting space in there for us to have events, uh, for ongoing education and, uh, and I think it's it's uh, it's got a bright future. I I definitely think so. It's funny I saw you and
1: Scott on EWTN last night. You you guys uh, a, a little bit uh, fewer gray hairs, young men. Uh, it was great actually. I was just like, oh my goodness, look at this. I was flipping through the channels. Uh, I forget the name of the show, but it was uh, it was uh, literally I saw it yesterday. I was like, you guys have been together for quite some time.
2: We well,
0: have- let's. Well let us real quick uh for those who out there who are just joining the program we're being joined by a friend of the show that we're proud to say Mike Aquilina uh from the St. Paul Center how th- we're discussing his new book or we're going about to discuss his new book How the Fathers Read the Bible Scripture Liturgy in the Early Church um so uh I guess uh, Joe you want to go- No I guess pick even from-
1: um, let's talk a little bit about like this is my understanding of the Bible uh, St Jerome put it together um so when you say the fathers reading the Bible, was there a Bible? I mean, was it oral tradition? Like, like I, I'm actually interested in that because I always, always, you know, thought that it was Jerome that put the Bible together. You know, message to our Protestant brothers and sisters out there, it was the Catholics that put the Bible together. But walk us through that process. How did the fathers read the Bible? Say uh, before Jerome.
2: Well, for the earliest fathers, uh, the the but the Bible was the uh, the scriptures that we had inherited from ancient Israel it was the what we call the Old Testament now and so they immersed themselves in those scriptures that were available in in the synagogues and uh, were proclaimed in the synagogues and um, and constituted the uh, the the authoritative texts of of Judaism which was just emerging then uh, the you have to understand in the in the first century, that first generation of Christians, um, they received the faith from the apostles, uh, and, uh, and there was not a clear distinction from them and from the rest of the Jews who were out in the diaspora, uh, Christians were often confused with Jews, Jews were confused with Christians, and, um, and, uh, and, and that's the way it was for the, the first generations of the church, uh, um, You bring up a good question, though, and that's the thing I'm struggling to answer here. You know, what were the scriptures for the early fathers? And I think that there was something of a consensus from the beginning about which books were authoritative, which had been produced by the apostles, um, because you see them quoted in the earliest of the fathers of the church. Who are the earliest fathers of the church? Well, we have Clement of Rome. Clement of Rome was writing... uh, you know i think he he produced his letter to the corinthians around 67 ad 67 ad that's pretty early in mm. the church's history right after the death of saint peter and saint paul um who probably you know taught the faith to clement uh, after him you know we have we have ignatius of antioch and polycarp of smyrna who also received the, the faith from the apostles themselves. Uh, so we look at what, what what are they doing in these letters that they wrote. We have seven letters from Ignatius, one from Clement, and we have one from Polycarp. What are they doing in these letters? What are the, the uh, texts that they're citing as authoritative? Well, they cite the text that we now call the Old Testament, but they're also citing some of the letters of St. Paul, and they're citing the Gospels. Sometimes they're even quoting these texts. Mostly they're talking about Jesus and talking about him in ways that we recognize today. Um, but they're putting forth the faith and they're referring to these documents. And, um, and, and there's nothing like a list that we have in that first generation. There's nothing like that. But they, there are these texts that are cited as authoritative When we move beyond that generation, we get to to great names like like St. Justin Martyr, St. Irenaeus, and they're pretty clear that there are only four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And anything else you might see out there, there might be good things in those books, but they're not authoritative. How early is that, Mike? How early is that? The one hundreds in the middle of the one okay. hundreds. I think that that was pretty clear, even to the early genera- earlier generation. You know, the generation of the apostolic fathers. But when when you once you get to the middle of the one hundreds, then they they feel that they have to state that clearly. Okay, because there is a proliferation of books by that point, uh, we have we have books like the Gospel of Mary out there, which is a beautiful book. It's kind of a novelistic account of the um, of the childhood of Mary, the birth of Mary, and so on. And uh, and and it's it's a devotional book. It's like many modern novels that are based on the life of Jesus Christ, but it's not authoritative in the way that Scripture. Mm-hmm. is authoritative it's not inspired the way scripture is inspired so so yeah the the books of the bible were there from the beginning they were revered in the church and by the end of the 100s you begin to see several authoritative lists uh there's one from Melito of Sardis from that time there's uh there's another one we don't know who wrote it but it's called the Muratorian fragment because it includes it's a fragment of paper, but it includes a list of the books in the New Testament. And the table of contents kind of lines up with what we have in the in the the our Bibles today. Um, it's not until the fourth century, the end of the fourth century and the beginning of the fifth century that we have councils of the church, councils of the church declaring which books were in the canon and which books were not. And then we have those the decisions of those councils ratified by the popes um, in the uh, in the fifth century. What
1: languages are we talking about here? You know, from the beginning, is it Aramaic? Is it Greek? Where are we going with language?
2: Mostly we're talking about Greek it's the Greek scriptures that the the apostolic fathers knew. It's the Greek scriptures mostly that the that the apostles knew. Those are the scriptures that they're quoting in their New Testament epistles. Um, uh, later on, we find that the Greek texts were translated into Old Latin, right? And uh, and then you mentioned Jerome earlier on. Jerome was brought on board in the the late fourth century to do a new edition of the Vulgate, the old Latin translation, and to try to unify the various translations that were out there in the Western church. Then Jerome decided, well, I want to do fresher translations. So Jerome went back and did it all over again, translating from the Greek. And finally, Jerome learned Hebrew in order to go back and do the, New- the Old Testament yet again, And translate it from the Hebrew. So so that's in the the end of the 4th century, the beginning of the 5th century, Jerome is doing really heavy lifting in order to get the scriptures into a a shape, a form that the church can absorb, that the church can can take in uh, in the course of the liturgy.
0: So Mike Aquilina is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Racinello on the Veritas Catholic radio network. The book that Mike has recently written is how the fathers read the Bible, scripture, liturgy, and the early church. Joe Racinello, I'm going to hand it over to you.
1: You mentioned languages. Cause I mean, I, I work in a legal capacity in banking and I, I know how lawyers can twist words. Um, and, There was a famous, well, it's not so famous, but it was a movie, a Bill Murray movie, Lost in Translation. It was actually a nice movie uh, when he was, you know, in Japan. Um, but, But leaving all that aside, when things get translated, sometimes they're like colloquialisms, like, like different ways to say things that don't necessarily translate from one language to the other. How does like a scholar when they're doing this, not lose, say the meaning of the text? I mean, you always hear of like, you know, real smart people, you know, they'll they'll study Greek, and they'll read the text in its original form, or they'll study Hebrew. I mean, how do we know that like, the translation didn't get lost?
2: Well, you always lose something in translation. Every translator is a traitor, as the old Latin proverb says. You know, you always lose something. I'm not a scholar of Greek, but I know that when I go back and I read the the, the Greek New Testament, I can see that so many of the words are compounds. And when we translate the compound into an English word, we really don't get all of the elements that go into making it a compound. Um, so, so yeah, you lose something when when, when you when when um, when you translate a text. But, you know, how were the how were the first Christians uh, taking those texts in? You know, we think of them to then uh in terms that uh, that were not operative then we think of them almost as if they're modern christians who have all of um all of the scriptures on their smartphone uh, you know with with all of these bible study tools and and everything else you know at that time most people could not read and they could not read because they really didn't have access to texts there was no good reason to learn how to read. There were no printing presses, so texts were not readily available. And Christian texts especially were against the law to own, okay? The practice of Christianity was a capital crime in the time of the early fathers. So you could be killed if you were found with Christian scriptures. So where did the people encounter the Word of God? Well, they went to Mass, just like we do today. And when they went to Mass, they heard the scriptures proclaimed, in the, the readings, just like we do today. And then they heard the scriptures opened up, interpreted in the homilies. That's the way the church received the word of God and took it in. And it's not just a natural process. It's not just downloading information. It's not just Bible study the way we might do it today. No, it's, it's a graced moment it's it's the place and the time where the Holy Spirit is operative, where the Holy Spirit is active, not only in the preacher who's putting the word out there, but in the, the congregation, the individuals who are sitting in the pews taking it in. The, the Spirit is active not only in the proclamation, but in the reception, in the hearing. Y- you Mike know, Aquilina
0: y- joining us here at the front line with Joe. And Joe, the book is "How the Fathers Read the Bible: Scripture, Liturgy, and the Early Church." Mike Aquilina. So, uh, Joe, Arsino, I said so, Sorry. I no, cut I was going
1: to say you bring up a good point because, like, you see in like old like movies on EWTN about like various saints to own a book, you had to be rich. It yes. was handwritten. I mean, like pe- people kind of lose like perspective on that. Uh, you know a book was handwritten, I mean I think about that like think about like i'm I'm looking at your your bookcase behind you, picture handwriting, all those books
2: that's quite a job you know, my wife read a novel that was set in the middle ages and it was uh the 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 life of a, a very wealthy family and you could tell they were wealthy because they owned eleven books that was un, un unimaginable wealth to own 11 books. St. Thomas Aquinas said he would trade all of Paris just to own St. John Chrysostom's um, commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. He would trade all of Paris for that. Today, if I open up my browser and go to newadvent.org, I can get all of Chrysostom's commentary on Matthew for free. I could stay up all night reading it. We have untold riches at our fingertips. This is the kind of thing that the the early fathers would have would have loved to have had. Um, but you know, they 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 weren't crying because they didn't have it because they still had the word of God, given to them in the context of the liturgy.
0: Excellent, Mike. Um, would you agree that to, that today there's a renewed. Um, interest in the writings of the early church fathers, not just amongst Catholics, but also amongst Protestants and Orthodox. Oh, do, absolutely. Do, well, absolutely. why do why do you think that is? I think that's a I think that's an important question to 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 know a little bit more about.
2: Well, for different reasons, you know, for Catholics, Catholics have found uh, have found the fathers uh, useful for apologetics and also useful for um, uh, an appreciation of our tradition okay when people tell you that you know as as one one pamphlet protestant pamphlet i saw back in the 80s i remember it said the mass is a fourth century invention I mean, what's that? No, no, it's not a fourth century invention. Your Italian's coming out, Mike. I love it. (laughs) All of the early fathers talked about the mass. You know, all those guys I mentioned before, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, uh, uh, Polycarp of Smyrna. They're in different places on the planet, and yet they're all talking about the mass in the same terms. So I think the fathers... Um, means something special to Catholics. Means something special to the Orthodox because we've had that unbroken tradition. You know, when we when we put together the Catechism of the Catholic Church, when the Catholic Church uh, put together its Catechism back in the early '90s, they needed a description of the Mass. Right now, if you go into the Vatican, you see that there are offices filled with brilliant people. Okay, all these brilliant people with doctorates. editors of the catechism could have gone into any one of those offices and said hey produce me a new description of the mass but they didn't instead they looked into their files and they saw that they had one from justin martyr that was produced in 150 a.d and that would do just fine Mm. so when we look at a text from 150 a.d coming from the city of rome produced by a man who was born in the holy land it describes the mass just as it's taking place at my church, at my parish church in the year 2022, just, you know, right now, <laughs> a half a mile away from my house. So, I mean, I think that's the value for Catholics. You know, we can look into the fathers and see that we share the same faith. It hasn't changed. Right. We, that's no, so no, important.
0: I want to, real quick, Joe, but were you about to say, mention the Protestants, Mike? Yes,
2: yes. Please. Yeah, that's where I was going with that. Um, um, You know, look behind me. These books right here, the ancient Christian commentary on scriptures, they were put out by InterVarsity Press, which is which is an evangelical publishing house. Because I think there has been uh, a renewed appreciation of the fathers among Protestant Christians, because they see their value, you know, there there's a value for them in terms of apologetics. They want to talk about the authority of scripture, about the inspiration of scripture, about why we have the canon we do. And so they go back to these historical texts in order to understand what was going on in the scriptures. The mm. fathers were living in that world that all Christians prize. You know, the, the the technology that they knew, the sports that they knew, the military that they that they knew, it had not changed all that much from the time of Saint Paul. So if you wanna understand Saint Paul you really do get light from seeing how the fathers read St. Paul or how the fathers read the Gospels. Um, it's, it's invaluable, no matter what kind of Christian you are. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny, because
1: a lot of people try to separate the Bible from the Mass, and this is something you address in your book, and this is something that your center, St. Paul Center, does very well. You can't. Um, you simply can't. I mean, I'm a big fan of Marcus Grodi all, almost every person that comes on that show always says once they read the church fathers, they're like, I have to be Catholic. Yeah, what I what I'd be interested. Why is it that people there's almost like it's it's like disingenuous because it's written down like all you have to do is just follow the line like like what's what's the block I mean it just shows you the brokenness of of humanity because like it's so clear
2: it really is it's mathematical it's it's just so clear <laughs> I, you know I I have the same experience when I sit down and I read the fathers I can remember um reading the story of a convert um uh who who had been uh Lutheran and uh, he's he teaches philosophy at the University of Texas. I can't remember his name, uh, but he was giving his account. And he said that when he was in in seminary, he was always fascinated by these men called the church fathers because they were often invoked in the textbooks that they were using in quotations, okay? There would be these little quotations from the fathers of the church. And these quotations were always stunning. And he said, you know what, when I get older, I'm going to start reading the Church Fathers. And you know, years went by and he decided to start reading the Church Fathers. Well, no longer was he reading the quotes that were cherry-picked from from uh from the the fathers' works, but he was reading the works themselves. And once he started reading the works of the fathers, he he could no longer recognize his his 20th century Lutheran congregation, and here was a man who was a clergyman, okay? He could no longer recognize the church that he belonged to, but he did see the Catholic Church in the pages of the Fathers. You mentioned Marcus Grodi um, a few years back, uh, actually several years back now that now that I think of it, uh, when he welcomed his 1,000th clergyman in, into the church um, from, from Protestantism, uh, I asked him, I said, Marcus, out of the that thousand, how many came in by way of the fathers? And Marcus said, huh. Out of a thousand, I'd say a thousand. So yeah, I think you're right, Joe. You know, when when you get into the fathers, when you start reading the fathers, the words of the fathers, it, it there's a pull. There's a pull toward. Um, the traditional Christian faith, the liturgical faith, um, the faith, the faith of the fathers, which was the faith that Jesus Christ gave to the Apostles and that they handed on to the next generation. It's recognizable.
0: I think, I think alongside of knowing our Bibles, reading our Bibles, listening to those who know the Bible more than we do, I think a great, great tool, and I think that's where we're going with this, of evangelization, is to speak particularly to our Protestant brothers and sisters, our evangelical brothers and sisters, you know, and say, and what you just said, Mike Aquilina, have you read the Fathers? Because if you want to, if, if you want to, let's say, for argument's sake, you say, well, we don't need a church, we don't need, we just have the Bible. Have you read the Fathers? In other words, these are the people that studied under the apostles that follow were followers of the apostles. I don't know. I think Joe Russell mentions like linear and logical. I don't know if like logically, if they're honest with themselves, I think they're going to have to they're going to have to take that that I was about to say second, maybe even first look. Or second look at the at the Catholic Church and what the Church offers. Would you I agree, think, Mike?
2: Uh, yeah, I think so. I think that we have to we have to we have to model a life that they want to live. Okay, it's not like we have to tell them stop loving the Scriptures as much as you do. No, that's not what we want. We need to make ourselves love the Scriptures as much as the fathers did, so that they could say, "Wow, wow, this is this. You're even more into this than I am," you know. And they can recognize that love of the Scriptures and they can see it you know, as a bond between us, rather than something that divides us. We are divided, okay? But we are divided by our, our, our conflicting traditions. It, it should not be Scripture that divides us, but it's our tradition of interpretation, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, often I'll hear uh, Protestants say uh, that, that, well, I have Scripture, you have Scripture and tradition, And and I'm like, no, we do have scripture and tradition, but you have scripture and tradition too. You have a tradition of interpreting certain words in certain ways. You know, all of these formulas that you have, have you accepted Jesus Christ into your heart as your personal Lord and savior? That's a beautiful liturgy, but it's a liturgy passed on in tradition. Okay. You're not doing anything different from what we're doing you just have a different liturgy and a different tradition how about tulip okay that acronym yep. that's right. used by calvinists that it appears nowhere in scripture you won't find those words appearing together anywhere in scripture it's a tradition an interpretive tradition we have to understand that and get beyond that get back into the scriptures themselves
0: well i think go ahead mike no finish please
2: now, if we model that, if we model that kind of love of the scriptures, then yeah, you know, the conversation just might go forward.
0: All right. Uh, we're going to leave it there for a second, Mike. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, for those of you just joining, we're, we have uh, Mike Aquilina, friend of the show. We're proud to say he's written a book called How the Fathers Read the Bible Scripture, Liturgy, and the early church. Mike real quick, where is it available? uh stpaulcenter.com.
2: Well, it's it's available anywhere you can get catholic books. Um, I think you'll you'll always get the best price at uh, catholicbooksdirect.com, catholicbooksdirect.com. And they have a page just for my books, so so go there.
0: Excellent. And as we always say on the show, we have to support our, our, our Catholic organizations, particularly our publishers and those who write books and, and distribute them through those publishers. So Mike Aquilina is going to come right back. We'll be right back at the front line with Joe. And Joe, stick around. We have one more fascinating segment.
3: Listen to all five of our original Veritas shows. Every Wednesday at noon, you can catch Let Me Be Frank, where Bishop Frank Caggiano talks about spirituality, church news, and fun stories from his Brooklyn childhood and his life. You can hear the Frontline with Joe & Joe every Tuesday and Thursday at noon. Their guests include the biggest names in the Catholic world, and Joe & Joe talks to them from the perspective of the everyday Catholic. Thursday nights at eight o'clock, tune in for the only late night talk show on Catholic media anywhere. It's not that late with Liv Harrison. And at noon on Friday is Restless. It's four millennials talking about, well, life as millennials in today's crazy world. Yes, it's possible to be young and Catholic. Right after that at 1230, you can hear the Focus on Veritas, where we put the focus on good works and the good people doing those works. Those are the five Veritas shows, and there's more on the way. Stay up to date at VeritasCatholic.com or on the mobile app.
0: Welcome back, everyone, to The Front Line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Rasinello. Way in the Breach with Mike Aquilina. We're discussing his new book, How the Fathers Read the Bible, Scripture, Liturgy, and the Early Church. You're listening to us on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, uh, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area. Joe Resinello. Where where do you want to head, Joe Ressinello? Well,
1: I I actually you know in doing research for the interview I have you know some notes in front of me and I'm going to answer one of my questions actually and I'm interested in Mike's commentary. It says I basically want to know what characterizes a father of the church. The way I see that is authority. There is authority. It's apostolic. Um, Whenever I get into conversations with people, particularly uh, Protestants and even sometimes Catholics, where is your authority? The authority rests with the church. And that's the argument settler. Um, If you're honest with yourself, it should be. Talk about the authority that rests with the fathers of the church and that's
2: how they're characterized as that fathers am i off with that uh, no no that's it they are fathers most of them are, are most of them were bishops you know during during their lifetimes uh, and they are the greatest teachers of antiquity now if you think about them you look at any list of the fathers they, they you'll usually find between 100 and 150 of them but that's from a period covering 750 years okay so uh, so this is just the cream of the crop the absolute best and they're the um, the teachers who have been revered consistently since the time of the early church. It was during the early church that people began to revere the fathers of the generations before them. Saint Jerome himself was a great stu- student of the fathers, and he lived in the fourth and fifth centuries, okay? And he wrote a book uh, that's really one of the early textbooks on the fathers of the church. He eventually was honored as a father himself. We usually say that there are four marks of a church father. One is is holiness of life. These were guys who, who didn't just talk the talk, they walked the walk, okay? They were saints. Most of them are honored as saints in the church. Uh, holiness of life, they have sound doctrine, soundness of doctrine. That's the second mark of a father, okay? They, they're the ones who taught the truth consistent with the fathers who had gone before them. Holiness of life, soundness of doctrine, uh, church approval. These were the fathers who were cited as authorities by the early councils of the church, the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Constantinople, the Council of Ephesus, the Council of Chalcedon. At all of these councils, the fathers themselves were evoked, uh, invoked. Um, the fathers of the earlier generations were invoked as authorities. Um, finally, the fourth, the fourth um, mark of a father is antiquity it there they, these are the um, the teachers only from this period of the early church and there's a reason for that um one of my favorite theologians joseph ratzinger later known as as pope benedict the he put it this way he said in christ in jesus christ god revealed himself in his entirety this is all of me and he showed him to us that was the fullness of god's self-revelation but and revelation is a form of communication but communication is a two-way street there's a call and a response right the word goes out and and the the receiver responds and the way the church responded was with the work of the fathers the liturgical families that were formed during that period the canonization of the holy scriptures uh, all of the things that were brought together in the in the time of the fathers of the church that's where we got the classic creeds that were that's where we got the mass as we celebrate it today and baptism as we celebrate it today we got so many of the traditions uh, that are based on scripture they were codified and canonized during that time
0: Mike, uh you had you had said that um or I believe you said the the Bible and the mass cannot be pulled apart. Um let me get what I think is the exact quote. Quote, the home of scripture is the liturgy and the liturgy is scripture in action before our eyes. Now, I find that to be a fascinating statement. I want you to break it down because that's why we love having you on the show, Mike. Be uh one of the reasons why is because you break things down that should be we should be able to recognize, but we need help sometimes. All us Catholics out there—that's one of those that hits me square right between the eyes. How is how is the liturgy, the liturgy, scripture, action, in action, right before our eyes?
2: Well, let me go back to the first part of that statement um, and 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 talk about um uh, about the 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 liturgy being the home of scripture. Mm-hmm. If we read the Old Testament, you know, we we see um, we see that when Moses was was um, was ratifying the the old covenant, you know, the covenant on Mount Sinai. What did he do? He proclaimed it. He read it aloud. He read it aloud to the people in a sacrificial setting. He sprinkled them with the blood. Behold the blood of the covenant, right? So it, it was it was in a liturgical setting that he proclaimed the words of the covenant. We find the same thing happening in the time of Josiah. We find it happening in the time of Nehemiah. We have these public proclamations within the liturgical assembly. This is what the scriptures were for, okay? They weren't meant to be studied on a smartphone, that's, that's not why they, 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 were, they were inspired. They weren't meant to be studied in a library so much as proclaimed in the assembly. Same thing happens in the New Testament. St. Paul is given instructions in some of his letters to the readers. The people he knows will be reading these aloud to the assembly, and we find similar instructions in the book of Revelation. As the inspired authors were setting down these words, they knew that they would be proclaimed at mass they knew that and that's what they were producing these texts for so that's what i mean about the church you know the home of the scriptures being the liturgy okay now the second part uh, you know the the um the, about about uh, liturgy being the, the scriptures in action, well, that's where we step into the stream of salvation history. That's where we take part in this event that our Lord established for us. Think about it. When he instituted the Eucharist, when he celebrated the first mass at the Last Supper, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Do this as my memorial. He, he established a sacrificial rite that we were to, to enter every time we get together as a church we still do that today right we step into the stream of salvation history when we baptize a baby right what are we doing we are in a sense participating in 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 uh in 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 Noah's rescue from the flood all of those things that are later on evoked in the New Testament as types, Old Testament types of New Testament realities, right? Uh, St. Paul says that baptism uh, is, was typologically prefigured by Moses getting water from the rock, right? Well, we're, we're stepping into that scene again when we take a baby to be baptized. You know, we're rescuing that baby on the ark. All of these things become active, in, in, in the sacraments of the church. That's why the sacraments are there, so that we could participate in the fullness of salvation history. Those, those events are not just once and done. They were not once and done for Israel. When they were remembered, when we got together as an assembly and remembered the marvels the Lord had done— We were entering those marvels. We were experiencing the miracles. We were knowing God's power at that moment, and we still know it today. We know it in the sacraments of the church.
0: Joe Racinello.
2: Yeah, I wanted to ask you particularly, because,
1: I mean, this is your field of expertise. I mean, all men are flawed, as we all know, and you see it even now. People see things through their own lens, even good men. I mean, they see things through their own lens. Did these fathers have cultural blind spots, um, you know, that you're aware of? Like, basically, uh, you know, I mean, people are people, you know what I'm saying? And people have a way, you know, sometimes of seeing things the way they want to see it.
2: Of course they did. And that's evident even in the pages of my book. Uh, A a nice chunk of the book is, is devoted to disagreements between some of the fathers. I talk, I talk about, about the, the ways that um, that St. Augustine disagreed with St. Saint, Saint Jerome. You know, Augustine had serious objections to some of Jerome's projects. Uh, he did not think that you should be so quick to change the words that the people had always heard in the liturgy. And that's what Jerome was doing when he retranslated the scriptures. Augustine thought that was disrupting the life of the church. It's an argument to be made. Um, So yeah, they did not always agree with one another. Sometimes they did have those blind spots you're talking about. Sometimes they did not like one another. There were serious disagreements among the fathers of the church. So what the church looks for when looking back to, to the fathers is a consensus of the fathers. You know what's the consensus when we read the fathers? Um, do they have unanimity on any points? Well, yes. What are those points? And and we can we can look at those those truths that all of the fathers testify to, and we can say yes, that's the faith as we should be passing it on f- into the future.
1: You know, it's funny because this morning I was reading my Magnificat, and I read something about uh, Philip Neri and ignatius loyola who both were contemporaries of one another in rome and loyola thought philip Neri's activities were foolish some of his activities now these are two great saints i mean like you want to talk about impact yeah um and they were canonized on the same day <laughs> which is also interesting um I think that's a lesson for all of us. And this is why I I liked your response. St. Paul tells us we have to bear with one another. This is something I think that's lacking in the Catholic world today, um, particularly on social media. People have to bear with one another. You know, there's a lot of things, you know, like if you like agree with someone, 95% of what they say. Why pick on the five yeah. percent? Like, like, let's focus on the good. It's not being done, and I mean, and it's also, I think, a point to be made that even saints did it, and they're saints.
2: Yes, yes, yeah. You know that that's that's something that you get in in reading the fathers, especially the fathers of the late fourth century. There were so many. Controversies that were that were really tearing the church apart at that time, and there were serious differences about how to approach the controversies. Uh, people were arguing from different languages, and uh, the, the the vocabulary, the terminology, did not always line up was not always easy to translate so there was a lot of misunderstanding there were cultural misunderstandings and and it's only over time that that the church resolves these things yeah i think that that we need to have humility right and and say that that i could be on the wrong side of this argument even though i think i'm right canonized saints have been on the wrong side of arguments and they thought that they were right
0: so a lot of i think there's a lot of humility I mean, again, Mike, Joe, and I are not judgmental guys. We're not judging anybody, but there, there seems to be a a lack of humility uh, out there in, in certain places um, in in the Catholic world to 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 let's say uh, humble yourself to the point that you just described to say maybe I ought to rethink my position, maybe I ought to look into it more, maybe I should pray on it more. Where social media is sometimes a little bit of a quick. I need to react to what that person said, and that person might. Hey, look! If somebody's saying something that's flat out heretical, um, I, I'm I might be with you on that. A lot of times, these are these are arguments over those things which fall within our prudential judgment, <laughs> and in that case, I don't understand why, as Joe mentioned, why are we not bearing with one another? Where you'll take one out of a hundred things, ninety nine percent you agree with the person, one percent you don't. You don't even talk to the person anymore. I, it's sad. I I guess is my point, but I guess what you were saying is even saints and fathers of the church kind of argued with each other a little bit, right?
2: Yeah, they did. They did. And uh and sometimes with tragic effect, if you if you read about about the uh the differences among canonized saints that led to the demise of St. John Chrysostom, it's one of the saddest stories. You know, you look at the 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 30 years that that led up to his 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 uh you know I, I think I can call it a murder you know he was he was put on a forced march in harsh conditions and he died along the way uh he his health could not could not sustain the, you know that level of of duress and uh and yeah, I think um I think that that stories like that should sober us, you know, and say say I don't want to be the one who uh who causes that kind of grief because of my obtuseness. Because of my misunderstandings. Uh, I think it was Cardinal Cook in New York. You
1: could correct me if I'm wrong when Dorothy Day died. Now, she was a controversial individual, um unorthodox in many ways. But I, when she died, I believe Cardinal Cook was in New York and he was like, I'm not saying anything about this woman because she's going to become a saint. <laughs> and I think that was very uh, like true because she is going to become a saint and she didn't operate like everybody else. Yes. Uh, You know, so that's where sometimes I think one has to like pause for a moment because we haven't figured out the mind of God.
0: Mike, Mike Aquilina joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. How the fathers read the Bible, scripture, liturgy, and the early church. And in the last couple of minutes, Mike Aquilina, we got a little bit, let's use a word, negative. Uh, but here's what I would ask you to follow up on that. What would you think the church needs today to emulate most about the early church, the early church fathers, and why?
2: Hmm. Boy, that's a big
0: question. That's I know, I know, question. but that's why you're <laughs> here at the front line, Mike <laughs> uh, one
2: one thing I'd like to see is for the laity to reappropriate their place in the church right mm-hmm. uh, because because uh especially especially yeah. especially the role of the laity in the very early church, the time of persecution uh, because later on, when the church was established and it was the official the official organ of the, of the empire, so to speak. Uh, It was funded by the empire and there was a prestige that came with the clerical state that was not there earlier, you know, earlier, you know, priests, were 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 the ones more likely to be killed the more ones more likely to be shamed in public and everything so there was an equality among the members of the church a a uh, a mutual encouragement in holiness i think there's a kind of clericalism today where we act as if well the clergy are the ones we pay to be holy they need to be holy and they need to be holier than they are well that's bunk i need to be holy only saints will get into heaven. The early Christians had that sense among themselves that that the apostolate, the the, the task of evangelization belonged to them. The task of becoming a saint belonged to them, and they needed to own it. Well, we need to have that today and not think, oh, well, I'll leave that to the priests and nuns and, and those who are professional Christians. I'm just going to schlump along my way here in my house because I can't be as holy as they are. No, we're all called to the perfection of holiness, and we've all got to strive for that. If we don't start living heaven now we're not going to be able to live heaven at the end of our lives on earth the early christians had such a keen sense of that 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 this idea that 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 holiness belonged to everybody that holiness was given to everyone in the sacraments and that we have an obligation to correspond to the holiness that was given to us as a gift. We needed to to be active in receiving it into our hearts, into our lives, and conforming those lives to it, making ourselves more worthy um, uh, for the next communion. And I would agree with that.
1: I mean, like, if you look at, like, the early fathers were so close to the original apostles, which were close to Christ. If you look to religious orders that were founded by a saint, you could say Mother Teresa, There are nuns alive today that lived with her. That rubs off. And that's why saints renew the church constantly, constantly. Um, And then as, as what happens, because it's humanity, we see it with governments, we see it with orders, we see it with societies, people kind of veer. And then God throws a saint in there and then it renews
2: again out of nowhere. But you hit the nail right on the head. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, we've all got to correspond to it. And, um, you know, you look at two documents of the early church, the letter to Diognetus, which is an anonymous text, anonymous text, and it talks about the life of the laity. It never talks about the life of the clergy. It talks about the life of the laity. If you look at another one, the Octavius by Minucius Felix, It talks about three lawyers on vacation for a weekend. That's the substance of the text. It's all about the life of the laity in the early church. There was this sense that that was the life. That was the stuff of Christian life on earth. And that's what was to be spread out. If you think about it, the clergy could not make converts during those years. How were you going to do it? You had no access to media. There weren't any media, right? And you could not stand out in the public square and shout the gospel because that was against the law. You'd be dead on the morrow. How did they do it? Well, the, 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 the faith spread through friendship. Through the friendship of lay Christians, and that's how the, the the faith needs to spread today. It's great, you know. I I just recently gave a talk uh, to an RCIA class, and so many of the people were in that room because of the witness of one person or the witness of a family who lived nearby, or you know, a coworker, something like that. So it's the it's the laity who need to become energized to correspond to. The holiness they've been given in the sacraments.
0: Mike, one 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 of the things Joe and I like to do here is uh, let's say for someone out there, a lay person out there listening to you. Sometimes people would like some maybe concrete ideas. Just again, from a layman's point of view, from a friend's point of view, what would you say to an audience member? Who says, but Mike, what 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 could I do as a lay person to help in this renewal of the church? What would you recommend I do? I would ask you, what what would you
2: recommend? Make a commitment to some points of daily prayer. Okay. It doesn't have to be over the top. Okay. But if you're not, if you don't have any um, program of prayer in your life, say, tomorrow I'm going to start. I'm going to do a decade of the rosary every day. Start with a decade of the rosary. Build from there. Give yourself a month of that. And I'll bet after that month of faithfulness to that one decade per day, you're going to be able to do a, um, an entire rosary every day. Start that way and use that rosary to pray for the intentions that are dearest to your heart. Invest yourself in it, okay? And and go forward from there. You'll be on an inclined pray, plane. You'll you'll find yourself praying more and you'll also find that God multiplies your time. All of the the prayer that you thought you never had time to do, God will make you able to do. He will multiply your time so that you can pray and still get done the things you need to get done.
0: Thanks for that, Mike. I, I sincerely, because I know I remember in my own personal journey. Sometimes I threw my hands up and I was like, "Well, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed?" Well. You know and i listen to good people like you out there in other words and and that's why you know again not because i'm better but because i listen um i like to think i listen maybe not to my wife but that's a whole other story she gets mad at me when i don't listen uh but i pray my rosary i I pray I, i stay faithful to the church teaching um i listen to the church these are the things you know and i wanted you to say it because i think it's important that people know there's many things we could do and obviously you hit the central one we need to start praying we don't have a lot of time let me hand it over to joe
1: um, in terms of like texts for the people out there listening, like what would you recommend in terms of church fathers going back to the, you know, obviously people don't speak Greek. Um, in New Jersey, we don't even speak English, but but, uh, but what's it called? What would you recommend, you know, like uh, what text or what fathers to focus in on?
2: Maybe three. Hey, what, uh, you know, I, I like to start with the very early ones. I always tell people start with Ignatius of Antioch. He's very early. 107 AD, he wrote his seven letters. You can find them for free online at newadvent.org, and you can read them there. It doesn't cost you anything. They're all very short. It's not going to take you much time. So you can get into those letters and see the church as it was lived in the first century in the generation right after the apostles you're going to recognize it as the church you're in today so ignatius of antioch would be one a second one would be clement of rome he was pope after saint peter okay uh, and and you 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 get into you get into his letter that he wrote to the corinthians and you'll see the kind of authority that the pope had in the first century in the years immediately after the, the death of the, the apostles, Peter and Paul. So you'll get into that church that was most primitive, that was living off the Word of God, uh, at, at a time when the, the voice of Jesus was still echoing in the ears of living people. Those two would be very important as, as an introduction to the fathers. And, and they're very short, very easy to read, and you'll find the texts for free online. Another good one is St. Is, uh, Justin Martyr his first Apology, and his second Apology. Again, they're short texts. They're not terribly long. You can find them online for free, and they show you the concerns of the church in the second century. So you can see the consistency among these early fathers. You can see that it's deeply biblical, but you can see that it also describes and assumes a church that looks a lot like the church you attend today, that the church, the liturgy that you attend every Sunday.
0: Thank you for that, Mike. Mike, let me ask you this. We probably have uh, maybe three or four minutes left. Are there any modern church thinkers out there today that you believe in your heart of hearts are going to be studied, let's say, in years to come? And when I say modern, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're they're alive, but let's say in the last 50 years or, you know, um, who do you think uh, out there might be studied in the years to come?
2: I have no idea in terms of, uh, like, who will be studied later on. That's a great mystery to me, because if you think about it, today we're studying so many people who were not appreciated in their own lifetime, and sometimes their writings only came to light later on, so... I, I don't know who, who will be read in the future. I do know that there are writers who have had a great impact on me in my in my my lifetime. And that one is Robert Louis Wilkin, a great scholar of the Church Fathers. He also was a Lutheran clergyman and a, and a professor at um, the University of Virginia. He became a Catholic several years back. Um, I find his writings about the early Church to be very, very fruitful reading. Um, uh, so many... Uh, other people are writing great things about the fathers right now. My friend Rod Bennett, who wrote Four Witnesses, and then he wrote Four More Witnesses, hmm. and recently he came out with a book on the apostles. Um, the, and and this book um, tells you the gospel, but from the perspective of of each of the twelve apostles. It's a fascinating book. So so many people in in our day, are looking at the texts of the early church and making them accessible and making them new for us so that we can enjoy them today and, and, uh, and draw fruitfully from them.
0: Thanks for that, Mike. Joe Racinello, we have time for maybe one more short question.
1: You know, you bring up a good point. Like sometimes people aren't appreciated. I, my view is I think Benedict Sixteenth will be studied for many, many years. I really do. I actually think he's going to become canon. I think he'll become a saint as well. Um, I've read Jesus of Nazareth. I think he's a very holy man. He's a very humble man. Um, and I think his texts will be studied for many, many years to come
2: absolutely he's somebody i've i've uh i've learned so much from as well, i've quoted him in this show but uh, but but uh but he also is a great scholar of the church fathers his job during the second vatican council one of his jobs was to find quotations from the church fathers to fill out the teachings of the the texts of the second vatican council
0: So, Mike Aquilina, unfortunately, because it's radio, we have to leave it there. I would like for you to tell our audience uh, not only just a quick blurb on the St. Paul Center, but where they could buy your books, this book in particular, How the Fathers Read the Bible, Scripture, Liturgy, and the Early Church.
2: Once again, um, the, the St. Paul Center promotes biblical literacy for all Catholics, biblical fluency for Catholic clergy and teachers. Uh, we, we, we try to get people to read the Bible from the heart of the church, and that means in the in the sacramental liturgy. Um, so that's the St. Paul Center. For me, you can find my, my works at fathersofthechurch.com, and you can buy them, if you wish, at catholicbooksdirect.com, catholicbooksdirect.com.
0: Awesome. Mike Aquilina, thank you as always for joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. You're always enlightening to Joe and myself. We know that our audience definitely is enlightened by what you have to say. So we truly, truly appreciate it every time you come on. Um, and we want to thank you all out there for joining us at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith. Please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Net- Network radio network mobile app so that you could have access to all of our station's content, not just Frontline with Joe and Joe. And if you'd like to give some feedback, you can go on VeritasCatholic.com, VeritasCatholic.com. In the About section, you can hit Testimonials and you could uh, let us know what you think of all our programming. And if you don't mind, follow Joe and I, if you'd like, on social media, at The Frontline TV, The Frontline TV on YouTube. We're really building up our channel there. Thanks once again. And remember, until the next time that our conversation is your conversation and that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon.